Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2007, the number of refugees worldwide hit 26 million. Thirteen years later, that number has more than doubled to 70.8 million people displaced, cementing the crisis as the humanitarian issue of our time. While the crisis itself has been well covered, the question has not been explored as what happens to those quote-unquote lucky few who not only manage to escape persecution, but also get what's perceived to be the golden ticket of resettlement to the United States. Jessica Goudeau, in her new book, After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America, uh, follows uh, two refugee women and their uh, their families, uh, one refugee from Myanmar and another from Syria. And uh, we're going to talk about it on the program today. Jessica Goudeau is written for the Atlantic, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Teen Vogue, among other places. It's a former columnist for Catapult. Uh, she has a Ph.D. in literature from University of Texas, served as a Mellon Writing Fellow and Interim Writing Center Director at Southwestern University. She spent more than a decade working with refugees in Austin, Texas. It's co-founder of Hill Tribers, a nonprofit that provided supplemental income for Burmese refugee artisans for uh, seven years. And uh, Jessica Gudo well, uh, joins us uh, by phone. Welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Good to, good to be with you. Uh, and for our listeners, I sound a little different today. Uh, through a series of circumstances, uh, I'm joining you from home on the phone. So uh, Jessica Gudo and I are on equal footing uh, uh, today. Usually I'd be in the studio and I'll be back there next week. Uh, so I noticed on your on your Twitter feed, Jessica Goudeau, this th- these issues they're ripped from the headlines, obviously. And on your Twitter feed, you were uh, you were sending out an appeal. You're doing some reporting on the on the folks who were naturalized in, in, a, in a live uh, during the Republican National Convention. Yeah, that's right. It was such an interesting and bizarre ceremony that we have never really seen from a sitting president who's seeking, who's seeking re-election. So we're kind of looking at what that means for the larger immigration policy that um, President Trump has in place. How, how did you get into these issues personally? Did, did, did you first get into serving refugee communities there in Austin, or what? how did you get into this? Yeah, this, this all came about through friendships. I was at a community center speaking Spanish, doing some healthcare initiatives to get word out about some new clinics that were happening in this neighborhood at a fall festival, and in walked a bunch of people who looked like they came from northern Thailand. I knew, you know, vaguely about refugees, but I didn't really understand the issues, and it was through meeting the first woman, that was Muna, who I wrote my book about, um, through just seeing what her life was like and understanding a little bit more as we got to know each other better over the next several weeks. Um, I really got engaged with what it means to um, help and support refugees. And I got to know the refugee resettlement agencies, and there's so many people from various faith backgrounds who are all involved. And I found this really rich community and eventually helped some friends start a nonprofit that was supporting these women. So a lot of people have this experience, I think. You get to know someone, and it really changes your understanding of these issues, right? And so especially with refugee resettlement, it's a very relational group of people, and so that's kind of my story. I think it's pretty typical. That brings up a good point, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to consider these as a kind of monolithic block of people. It's and uh, unusual circumstances, and, and the thought is among some uh, that uh, 
uh, you know, it, it, it's they're different in many ways than us. But I but I think you're you're saying that they're uh, these are just people. They're living their lives, and then horrible circumstances overtake them. Yeah, I think we often view them as if their visa category defines them. But I've said so often, nobody ever says to me, I used to live in Brazil, and I lived in Thailand and other places and around the world, and no one ever says to me, you need to speak for the tourist experience. You are someone that can really embody the tourist way, right? Like, that's not something that nobody ever looks at me by my visa category. And I think we often view refugees as if this one thing, the fact that they had to flee because they were facing persecution or conflict, defines who they are. But of course it doesn't. They are people that had lives before. I think the thing that we're often missing is they're not coming over to the United States because they want a quote-unquote better life for themselves. They have no choice. And that's the only quality that all refugees have in common. So no matter where they come from in the world, they're people who have been forced to flee because of circumstances beyond their control. And I think those of us who are really and all of us in the world right now are kind of struggling in this pandemic, have a unique moment to really understand what that feels like. Schools aren't the way that we thought they would be. Jobs have really changed. Our communities are shifting, and there's a lot of conflict going on around us. And it's not the same as what it means to be a refugee, but it helps us see all of us respond differently, and all of us are having to kind of face this in a way that is unusual, I think, for many Americans. Uh, so you've known the woman you call uh, Muna for, for a while, I think. Yeah, since she first arrived. I met her about six months into when the book began. Um, she, you said she, I call her Munash. Everyone actually chose a pseudonym for this book. This is not a book. Most of the women whose story I tell have people who are still in danger in their home countries, and so we worked really hard to protect their identity. But Munah and I have been close friends um, really since 2007, and over those years I've, I've developed the kind of trust that I think you need to tell a story like this. If you're, if I'm not a refugee. So uh, tell us a little bit about Luna. Uh, it, 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 both of these stories are just heartrending, and uh, it, you know, I guess most any refugee story would be. Uh, tell us a bit about Luna, um, ethnic minority, I believe, in in Burma or Myanmar. Yeah. Yeah, it's the longest-running civil war in the world, and it has its roots in colonialism. So um, the way that this, the countries were divided when um, the, it, it, in Myanmar, it's about the British colonialists who were there, um, it really impacted the regional tensions that, that were happening. And so the Burmese junta has been targeting um, Karen people, Kachin people. We know a little bit more about the Rohingya in the most recent years, but there are all these distinct um, groups that have their own languages and their own traditions. And the Karen people in particular are not just within Myanmar, but are kind of without, with, around Southeast Asia. And so um, they were targeted several years ago. And that's part of what the story begins with is the very first time that Muna crossed her border. And she ended up like many refugees in a camp in Thailand where she spent several years. In fact, the average weight, I didn't know this until I began research for, for this book, the average weight for refugees who live in protracted refugee situations or camps around the world is 26 years. And so her story is really indicative of what happens when someone can't go home, but they don't have a new place to go. So they're stuck for a really long time. Um, she was resettled under George W. Bush's administration. So this is definitely not a partisan issue. He and Laura Bush were really passionate about making sure that 
people who are in protracted refugee situations, especially people who are Karen. The Karen are typically Christian. They made sure that they were brought over, and there was a real wave of people that came and had amazing welcome. Um, they had this, like, all this support for um, having finding new jobs and everything that they needed. But part of what I wanted to do in the story was also show it's not like everything was perfect when they arrived. So I used the title After the Last Border. A lot of refugee stories kind of ends with the, the time that they cross the border as if, you know, now that they're safe, everything is better. And I wanted to push back against that stereotype and show resettlement is still a really complicated thing. This is, I wanted that to be the beginning of the story and not the end. Uh, so you've known uh, you, you've known Muna for for a while. Um, so what what sort of challenges did she face after the last border? What, as you say, the you know, the the golden ticket, quote unquote. You, you get to the United States, which is becoming more and more golden, right? Less and less uh, yeah. frequent. Um, so settled in Austin, Texas, and and as you say, I think our popular conception is. A uh, few, you know, you're 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 here. <laughs> They're here. The problems are over. Now, mm-hmm. now they are safer, I assume, right? The, the, some of the problems are uh, better, but uh, other problems remain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not as if I, I think it's so interesting because we understand those of us who have spent time abroad understand culture shock, and it takes time to learn a language. Um, I was in my 20s when I was living in Brazil, and I got so tired of being treated like a child because my language was at a child's level. And I brought some of that, though there were a lot of things I can't understand, into my conversations with Muna. What was so rich about it is because we had known each other for so long, we met every two weeks or two hours to go back in detail over her time because I wanted to make sure I had the kind of details that would provide a, a novelistic feel to the story. And in doing that, it was a completely different story than I understood. Um, I think we always view refugees as if their circumstances define them. But what the story that Muna wanted to tell in this book was a story about how women learn that they can be strong. And that's really what happens. She has a gift for languages. She is really resourceful. A lot of things happen in her, um, even in the first few days. I don't want to give it away, but there was this one moment I never knew about where she had to go find food because the caseworker that was working with her um, was not able to help them. And she ended up going on what felt like a really adventurous quest to get some chips. And it was this really amazing story, and it was a time in which she learned she was strong. So I don't feel like people should come to this book and think, oh, it's going to be so sad, this is really terrible. Actually, I found such joy in the story. Of course, it's a story of heartbreak and a story of loss, but it's also a story of strength and a story, I I found it really inspirational to listen to both of these women talk about what they've been through. And I want that to be central. This is really a story of of women and what they can do. Hmm. Um, And you could have told other stories as well, right? These are somewhat representative, I imagine, of many, many that you've met. They are. And part of what I'm always careful of is, you know, um, there's a really wonderful TED Talk by Chimamanda DJ where she talks about the danger of allowing a single story to represent an entire group. These are not stories that are designed to show what it means to be a refugee in some kind of grand way. These are just two women that I knew whose stories I knew were interesting and who I felt like I could connect with in the way that I needed to in order to write them. 
But also I wanted to show the difference between Munah, who arrived in 2007 and who had this complicated but also really wonderful experience. And you'll see um, in the book she gets her first job and she really becomes the person that's kind of bringing her family stability and roots. It's just a beautiful thing. She really struggles through her marriage and chooses how what it is like to be in relationship with her husband. And it's just a I feel like it was something that I could relate to as someone who's been married for a while. And the difference between that and what happened with Hazna, who was a Muslim refugee coming from Syria at a time when the United States had really turned against refugees in surprising ways. And she had just gone through a war that had devastated her and her community in the city of Dara, which is where the war in Syria began. And so I wanted to juxtapose these two women who are really similar in a lot of ways because they care a lot about their families. They are um, very smart, very strategic women who were always resourceful and kind of ingenious in the way that they manage these incredibly complex situations. And yet at the end of the day, they're the kind of women that just wanted to provide a safe place for their families. And so I wanted to use those to kind of show the differences, not in them, but in us, what's changed in our country. Let's talk about that after a break. Let's take our first break. Jessica Goudeau's new book, After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. Well, Jessica Goudeau, uh, get into a little more of Hazna's story. Uh, as she says, she wants to compare and contrast. So 2007, number of refugees, 26 million. 13 years later, uh, at our times, the number's more than doubled. And the attitude of the United States from uh, Munah's story to Hazna's story dramatically uh, differs, as, as, as we know. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be back following this. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. This is Science by the Slice. Power in Numbers. USU biologist Will Pierce is using data from the National Science Foundation's massive National Ecology Observatory Network to look into the future. With information collected from the coast-to-coast network known as NEON, Pierce will use evolutionary history to address practical ecological challenges, including wildfire, pest beetle outbreaks in forests, and insect-borne diseases. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams uh, joining you today from home. And I have uh, on the phone with me Jessica Goudeau, who is author of a new book, After the Last Border, Two Families, and the Story of Refuge in America. She tells the uh, dramatic uh, stories of two women, uh, Muna from uh, Myanmar, we just uh, heard that in brief before the break, and Hasna from Syria, uh, some 10 years or so uh, later. Um, so, Jessica, is that the right timeline? How, how much later uh, does does Hasna arrive than Munah? 
Yeah, so she arrived in 2016, but the story actually begins in 2011, in part because I wanted to make sure that you had a sense for who Hasma was in her home, that she was not a refugee first, but in fact was someone who was really well-established, because it really was a very different experience for her than it was for Muna, who arrived from a camp. Yes, uh, I was struck um, by how fast things can change. Uh, one thing I think Hasna says, and they're proud of the fact they don't have to lock their doors at night, for example, where they live, and then, uh, you know, just normal life. And and then uh, in, in short order, you know, through a series of circumstances, maybe you can recount a little bit of what happens, uh, they're fleeing. Yeah. You know, I think we have this stereotype of Syria and other countries as if they are just these places of violence and this conflict happens and nobody knows what's happening. And I I really wanted to make sure that I showed the Syria that I was receiving, both from Hazna and from the woman who served as a translator for us. She uses the pseudonym Amina. None of the people from Syria wanted to use their real names because their families are still in so much danger. And I wanted to show, at one point in one of our interviews, Hazna said to me, and it is in the book as well, the, the word Syria tastes like honey on my tongue. And I wanted to make sure that I brought that sense of this deep community that was very well connected, roots that went back so many generations they couldn't possibly remember, um, this, this land that was so important to them, this home that she had lived in, that she moved into, that her family had lived, her husband's family had lived in for generations and where she raised her children and was now bringing home her grandchildren. Because again, I think that that's the kind of story that a lot of us as Americans who really care about our land and have a clear sense for our family history um, can, can relate to. Like that experience of a grandmother baking a huge meal. Um, she always had big Friday lunches so that all the kids could come back home and bring the grandbabies. And she was just in the process of starting to have grandkids. And it was just a lot of joy. Her relative lived around. She was really close to her neighbors. They never locked their doors at night. And into all of that, in the city where she was living, the war in Syria happened, and it happened so fast. And all of these protests that have been happening around our country have reminded me in so many visceral ways of what she described. Like, it just changed, and then everything had changed. And I'm not saying that what happens in the United States is like what happened in Syria, but I think that the rate of change and the, the not knowing what's coming next is, is somewhat similar. Mm. So what happened to Hasna and her family? That they, they 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 fled at a certain point um, in in a camp. That's that's the usual case uh, in a camp of. And it could be for years in some people. So actually, what happens in Syria and Jordan is pretty different in some ways than what happens for other people. Hasna came from a pretty middle class home, and so they were they crossed the border into Jordan. And where they crossed the border used to be the kind of place they would walk across the border literally just to go get dinner and then come back. There were so many, there was like a lot of coming and going between the two cities that they, that she was in when she first crossed the border into Jordan. So she and her family actually lived in cities. And I wanted to tell that part of the story as well because a lot of refugees come from camps. And so we have the idea that all refugees are kind of languishing in huts, and a lot of them are. But there are also increasingly more refugees who are choosing not to go down that path because they know that once they get to camps, then they're stuck. So often they are either living legally as refugees and um, working illegally or trying to find some way to work there to make money as a family. And Hazma's whole family worked together, her sons and daughters and 
in-laws um, all kind of work together in this community. And that's what she was expecting to happen when she accepted resettlement to the United States. It had nothing to do with wanting to leave. She doesn't speak English. She loved Syria. She had no desire to come, but it was the desire to keep her family together and safe that was her only motivating factor. So when she decided to come over and receive resettlement, she thought that there was a good chance that they would do um, in the United States what they did in Jordan, which is everybody gets a job and they kind of pool their resources and live together and kind of work together to make their lives better. Hmm. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit more, maybe through Haza's eyes, uh, the, the process of, you know, after you've crossed the, the last border, that part of it, which, which is still going on, of course, for these refugees, right? Yeah. So Hasna and other Syrians had a really different experience from what happened in years earlier for the Korean refugees, but refugees from Myanmar and refugees that were coming from Somalia and some other places where there were large groups of people that received, of course, not, it was not perfect. It was not always, you know, all puppies and rainbows, but at least had some support. Actually, in Utah, um, the state of Utah, I don't know if you know this, has some of the best support for refugees. You get two years of caseworker support, and in a lot of places, it's six months or um, not the same. So I know that Utah has a real history of really receiving refugees well. But in 2015, the rhetoric around refugees shifted significantly in the United States, again, almost on a dime from bipartisan support. Churches had always supported it. People across faiths had always kind of come together around this issue and to work with people. And um, it really changed around Syrian refugees. And so when Hasna arrived in July 2016, she came to a place that was had suddenly become very angry at the idea that Syrians were coming to the United States. And a lot of it has to do with what happened with the Paris attacks in 2015 and the anti-immigrant um, and anti-refugee rhetoric that was really rising. And uh, actually, Gary Herbert was, Governor Gary Herbert was one of the only Republican governors in the United States to say that he was welcoming, welcoming Syrian refugees in 2015, and he did again in 2019. And um it was not the case. But for us in Texas, that was definitely not the case. We had a governor that was trying very hard to keep Syrian refugees out. And so the Syrians that I met as I was beginning to look for someone whose story I could tell um, were hesitant. They were really worried. They were as worried about revealing their names because they didn't want their families to be in danger in Syria, but also felt like they might put themselves in danger here in the United States. And that breaks my heart that after going through so much, and so much so quickly, this has been less than 10 years since Hasna's world was absolutely turned upside down by this horrific war in which thousands, tens of thousands of people have been killed by their own government, that they couldn't find safety and welcome here in the United States, but instead suspicion and the sense that maybe they're coming over here to take something or whatever it is that has kind of changed things so drastically for us in the state. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Governor Herbert, and uh, here in Utah, the you know the fact that yeah, Utah has a good uh, track record. I wanted to read something. This is something a lot of Utahns, I think, would uh, would understand just sort of uh, intuitively uh, as as to the why you know behind that. You know, the, Governor Herbert, at one point, the only Republican governor who'd who'd uh, you know opened the doors, for example. I uh, just want to quote from Salt Lake Tribune here. Uh, Governor Herbert said, The history of Utah as a haven for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints fleeing religious persecution informs its approach to refugees. He says that many Utahns empathize with the plight of those who have been forced from their homes 
so for many Utahns, an institutional you know, history of being refugees themselves is remembered, and uh, therefore, for many Utahns, uh, uh, you know, maybe a more welcoming uh, attitude. And I think this goes, uh, there have been times uh, that the U.S. has seen itself, uh, that's been part of our self-image, right, is that we are welcoming. Absolutely. You know, I think that part of what I wanted to do in this book is not just tell the two stories of these women, but also the story of how the United States' views on refugees changed. And so I went back, my PhD is in um, poetry, and it, I worked at it's like mid-century poetry, so I really am kind of an expert in the 1940s and 1950s, and that was the place that I began. It was a really rich time period to look at the rhetoric of refugees and how it changed. So that's part of what I wanted to tell people. I actually have viewed this as a coming-of-age story for the United States, how these views changed for us but shifted over time, in part because I, I personally want to know what happened and how we change so quickly and whether or not there's hope for us moving forward that we're going to change again, which, which I do have. But it was really the 1940s after the Holocaust when we finally realized the full extent of what had happened that we um, began to re- welcome refugees in a way that was really different from what had been happening in the 1920s and 1930s. And I think it's really important for us to recognize this is not the first time in our history we have closed borders the way that we have to people who are fleeing persecution because of their ethnicity or their religion. It's not the first time that we have ignored. We know what's happening, and we're still ignoring it. It's not the first time that there has been catastrophic humanitarian crisis, and we have put our fingers in our ears metaphorically and just gone on with our lives. And I think that that should cause us some real anxiety and soul-searching. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jessica Goudeau. Uh, the book is After the Last Border. Um, and you uh, are welcome to join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. I wonder if you could uh, talk about the policy um, in the 1930s. This was a whole... Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the U.S. and probably around the, the world, after they'd seen how this played out, uh, I think regretted that they had turned away uh, Jewish refugees. Uh, so 1930s, uh, the U.S. did turn away Jewish refugees, right? Yeah, they were actually, they were so close they could see the United States. And it's it's a story that's become really familiar to a lot of us, the MS St. Louis, that um, had a boatload, almost a thousand refugees who came close to the coast of Florida and were sent away um, by the president FDR at the time, many of whom ended up back in concentration camps and were killed. And I think it has given us a, a sense for what happens when refugees aren't accepted for resettlement. The problem today, in some ways, is because we don't see the dramatic It's not the same kind of dramatic moment. It's not a ship. Well, actually, there are in a lot of ways, too. But in terms of resettlement, because there are a lot of people that are in Jordan or that are in Tanzania or that are in Thailand or in India waiting for resettlement, they feel kind of out of sight, out of mind. We don't recognize that. There are a lot of people who would otherwise have been resettled in the United States whose war have been, whose lives have been drastically changed. In fact, I got a Facebook message a few days ago from someone in Iraq who has sent me all of these documents and pictures of his kids and said he was a translator for the U.S. Army and was planning to come over to the United States and had been accepted for the process when all of this happened. And it brought back to me again the stark reality 
that these are people. They are metaphorically and literally on our borders needing just a safe place to stay. And so often we act as if this is about numbers or this is about issues and we can kind of ignore the fact that it's really about people and their lives and people who are separated from their families. What are the, historically and then to the present, what are the, the, the reasons usually given for not accepting refugees? Uh, now, the Trump administration, uh, you know, frames this, I think, did frame it as a, a matter of preventing terrorists from coming, right? A matter of national security. Yeah, uh, you know, it's so interesting. That are given? The same arguments. Yeah, the same arguments have been used since you know, the beginning of our country. These people are coming to take our jobs. These people are going to come and hurt us. These people are a threat to us in some way, especially with the refugee resettlement program. You know, I I really want to be careful that I think that the anti-immigrant views, however we're talking about them, anytime we use stereotypes is really a problem. But especially when it comes to resettlement, you can't have a process that is safer than what has happened for the resettlement program. So part of what I did in the history of this book is build, show how that process was built into the 1940s. So there are two different groups of people, and actually in the 1930s and 40s, the Democrats were the restrictionists. They were the ones that wanted to keep people out, and the Republicans were the liberalizers. They were the ones that wanted to bring people in. And so resettlement has been this incredible balance. It hasn't always worked well, and it's not like everything has always been perfect, but over time they've built um, in between these two groups of people saying we can't just let everyone in, and we have to make sure that we let some people in. They've built this process where they are doing background checks that go through multiple agencies. Um, every refugee I've ever talked about, and part of what I wanted to show in Hosna's story is that process. What happens when you have those interviews? What are the kinds of questions that they ask? How do they know things? Um, at one point, they asked Hosna's husband about a cousin that lived in another village, and he was just shocked that they even had access to that kind of information. So um, it is, in fact, a really comprehensive process. In fact, those of us who have been involved in refugee resettlement for a long time think it might be too comprehensive. Sometimes there are a lot of people that really have, that are deserving of resettlement that are weeded out for a variety of reasons that we don't always know. But it's not as if there are all these terrorists lined up to spend two to five years in this incredibly intensive, ridiculous process to come to the United States, they're just going to do what terrorists always do, which is come over as a student or come over as a um, tourist, or they're going to be the kinds of people that, that are terrorists in the United States. And we never use that term for the people who actually do the acts of terror in the United States, many of whom often are white men. And I think that's part of what we often miss is we use these stereotypes to talk about people and miss the actual threat. I'm not saying all white men are a threat, but I am saying we need to be careful how we view people and who is safe and who is not. Hmm. Um, you're, you're right that um, the, the process for, you know, the processes that are set up were sort of ad hoc, right? Um, up until, what was it, about 1980? Uh, so yeah. Tell me about that. This was, this was a law that uh, President Carter signed, I believe. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I didn't realize when I thought about refugee resettlement, I thought there's a humanitarian crisis, the United States helps out. And really, that's not the case at all. There are so many humanitarian crises that happened in the 20th century, and there was no um, no resettlement process built up for them. But it has significantly more to do with the United States' values and how we see ourselves. So in the 1950s, we really wanted to prove to communists countries that capitalism was better. And so any communist refugees 
they were like the Hungarian refugees in the 1950s had this huge, big push to bring them over to the United States and to talk about them. But there were all these other humanitarian crises that were happening that didn't get the same kind of attention. And so it really was just, you know, a president decides we're going to let these people in or a law is passed and we're going to allow people in. And there was a lot of push in the middle of the 20th century to establish a regulated program. And so what happened in 1980, and again, I think this speaks to the bipartisan nature of this, Jimmy Carter signed into law the Refugee Act of 1980, and then Ronald Reagan resettled um, significant numbers of refugees. And the law itself passed the Senate in with unanimous bipartisan support, which I almost can't even imagine what that would be like at this point, to have a law about immigration measure that was unanimous in the Senate. So it really was something that was understood for a long, long time, the last 40 years of the program, except give or take the last five years or so, to be something that people across the political aisle could really get behind and support. That was like a key part of who we are as a nation. So uh, I'll fast forward at this point to the Trump administration, and you know we're all we're kind of the high points there. Uh, um, this is, I think in many ways, pretty unprecedented if you look back at the at least in the recent history, right? The the the, uh, the the restrictions on the numbers that the Trump administration has achieved, and maybe where they wanted to go. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think again, we often think about this as if this is a partisan issue, and I really want to reclaim the fact that it's not. I think this is something that Utahns really get. Um, we need to have the kind of critical thinking skills that allow us to look at history and look at policy and ask: Is this really um, the the partisan? policy that we want. So after 9-11, you would think the language about terrorism, there were a lot of really problematic things that happened happened after 9-11. But it is not, um, refugee resettlement remained at 70,000. And so even though um, immigration itself was paused for a few weeks after it, I honestly assumed going back that I would find that it had been really cut, the ceiling had been cut, and that only a handful of refugees had come over. And in fact, that was not the case at all. Um, what happened under George W. Bush is that he really turned to those places that had been um, having had a lot of refugees who had been stuck for a long time and, and really welcomed them in a way that was new for resettlement policy. So instead of it being something that was cut off and the language was, you know, anti-refugee, in fact, they really worked to talk about what it meant to be a refugee and to bring a lot of refugees over. And Munah's story is a, is a product of that time period. So um, though there have been a lot of um, there's been a lot of political language that has been complicated, and we still really have to kind of push against it. This, for me, was not a partisan book, and it really shows that the last five years are different from every president and every political moment that we've had. This isn't just about a president. It's also about governors, and it's about um, kind of our national rhetoric. This change against refugees is something that we haven't seen. You have to go all the way back to the 1920s and early 1930s to find this kind of racist, regionalist, um, language against people who are refugees. Mm. Now, the uh, you know one factor in in refugee settlement is it's it has be it uh, I guess according to law and and uh, the way this has developed in the United States this this is up to the president right this very much is in the area where the president can have uh, the uh, an effect uh, you know without Congress or or anyone else. Yeah, and what's so surprising about that is that 
it means that the president can set, you know, raise or lower the number. So every year by October 1st, the president is required by law, by the Refugee Act, to declare his presidential determination, saying the ceiling of the admissions number ceiling that he's going to set for the following year. And so it is exclusively under the president, in part because they were trying to create a balance between um, the different branches of government. But what that, what has ended up happening, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I, would, I don't know if this is something that anyone could have foreseen, is that this is actually one of the handful of places that uh, the Trump administration has almost complete control. And so several senators introduced what's called the GRACE Act, and part of what they are hoping with this act is to take resettlement away from the office of the president and make it a more regulated system so that it is always between you know, a minimum and a maximum. What happens for resettlement agencies, and I know Utah has a lot of really strong resettlement agencies, and they have all these communities of volunteers and people that have worked with refugees for a long time. When the numbers are high, that's really stressful because they have to find the funding and make sure they have enough people. The story that Muna, um, the first part of Muna's story shows what happens when there's a large influx of people and resettlement agencies aren't prepared for it, and it can be its own kind of stress. And so the surges in this program that are dealing with people's lives are really complicated for resettlement agencies that are some of the most innovative groups of people I have ever encountered in the world. I mean, they just do so much with so little. And so part of what I'm hoping moving forward is that we are able to regulate this in a way that doesn't create this kind kind of ebb and flow, both because of how it affects the resettlement system here in the United States and because of what it does to refugees who begin to enter the process. You know, when the executive order was uh, happened on January 27, 2017, there were literally families at the airport, relatives of friends of mine in Austin, who were turned away in Jordan and had to go back. They'd sold everything, and then they were no longer able to come as refugees. That took quite some time. So the capricious way that this has played out, the sudden, like, from morning till evening, you are no longer allowed to come to the United States, the way that it's targeted people from various regions of the country based on their religion and some other things, and also just the surge of, like, the decreasing the number so low, but then even the possibility of raising the number so high is so stressful, and it doesn't need to be this way. And uh, I don't think anybody's uh, – probably there's nobody in America now who, who doesn't think the presidential election is going to be consequential, right? But uh, on this particular issue, you know, whether you believe that uh, – the, the numbers should be restricted and approve of the Trump administration, or you believe they should be expanded. Uh, there's a very, uh, along with the host of every other issue, there are clear contrasts between the candidates. I believe Vice President Biden uh, has has stated what he would do, right, if he was elected. Yeah, the number that I heard, heard recently is that he wants to um, open resettlement to 125,000 people on his first day in office. So I know that this is something that's actually really close to his heart and is especially close to Kamala Harris's um, platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just yet another uh, thing to <laughs> to vote on among, among many things. Um, uh, let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have our final segment with Jessica Goudeau. The book is After the Last Border. And uh, part of the last segment, when we come back, Jessica Goudeau, I want to maybe get a little update on uh, how Munad and uh, – and Hasan are doing, um, and uh, and what the effect the pandemic has had on mm-hmm. you know refugees in in America, but also you know in camps and in you know in transit around the world. We'll have more following this. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Idaho National Laboratory. How do you store excess electricity so it can be released back onto the grid when it's needed? Researchers at Idaho National Laboratory may have the answer. More information at inl.gov news. Utah State University welcomes the class of 2024 as they begin their Aggie journey. And to support appropriate distancing and other health protocols, Utah Public Radio will broadcast the live welcome from President Noel Cockett. We'll spend some time introducing students to USU traditions, including the Scotsman and I Believe Chant. Parents, statewide students, and alumni, you're invited to join in for a special program broadcast Friday evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This week in This American Life, during a public meeting in Provo, Utah, here's how the audience reacted when a teacher testified that every student needed to wear a face mask to school. It was just wild to be surrounded by so many grown adults who were shouting at me. Yeah. When school finally began, what happened? Did kids wear masks this week? Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we've reached our last segment now with Jessica Goudeau. Uh, she's author of the new book, After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. Um, and so Jessica Goudeau, uh, make sure we get this in. I'll begin this segment with this. Um, maybe a, a, an update. I'm sure you keep tabs on Muna and uh, and Hasna. Uh, how how are they doing at this point during the during the pandemic and the economic downturn? Absolutely, yeah. We we keep tabs with them. We text all the time, and not just with Hasna, but with their with her kids who are around the world. I've actually gotten really close to this family. So um, Muna is doing well. She is. Um, I don't want to give the ending of the book away, but she is about where she was at the ending of the book, and it is a place where she and her um, family are really thriving, and so she's got kids that are doing virtual school now, and it's a little bit complicated, but it's really not unlike what most of us are dealing with. She's working, she's gone back to work in a socially distanced way, and um, while it's difficult, is is doing pretty well. Hazna is in a totally different situation. So Hazna will probably never learn English, even though she's tried. She's worked really hard at it, but her English, after a few years, is still not at the level where she's able to be fluent. And um, she actually had someone not long ago yell at her, this is before the pandemic, that she needed to, in a, like a, a co-worker, learn English or go back to where you came from, which was so painful to her because, of course, she would love to go back to where she came from and is not able to. So Hazna has been furloughed for now and um, is doing everything in her power to try to make ends meet. They are um, in many ways worse than they were at, at the end of the book, and I think that that's one of the things that's the most complicated for me. This is not a story that ended several years ago that I'm not telling. This is a story that feels incredibly fresh. So what happens with her children and her grandchildren, and what happened with her and her the rest of her family, is still ongoing in a way that um, there really has been no change. And I'm what I'm hoping with this book is that there is someone actually who reads it at some point and is able to help them in the kind of way that um, really can make some of the policy changes that are needed, not just for Hasna, but for people like her. This book is really about how um, these policies about family separation are not just for the children at the border. And of course, we should be incredibly concerned about those, but also for um, any time that, that we have policies that, that are 
billed as if they're quote-unquote chain migration when really they're just about families wanting to be together. That should be something that concerns all of us. Uh, part of the what struck me in the book is, um, you know, we all depend on and 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 want those connections, those family connections. Refugees are separated, um, and, and add to that the fact that your relative back wherever you fled from or wherever they are, uh, you know, they're every bit as fragile as you and, and maybe more more fragile. And then there's that emotional pain on top of things. When you could talk about that. Yeah. You know, Hazna and um, Jabril, her husband, don't sleep much. They spend a lot of time on their phones connected by WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger with relatives all over the world. Um, she had a relative recently that was killed, and it is just so incredibly painful. And so um, when when I heard her story, we met for every two weeks, but for several hours, in part because she has such incredible stress and grief about this, and I wanted to make sure that she had a chance to really tell me her story. And it is um, there is a part of her, and there was a part of me, too, in the act of writing it that can't believe that the beginning of the story, when she's sitting in her home you know, with a smell of jasmine around her drinking coffee, that part of that is gone. And I inherited a bit of her grief. Of course, it's not mine. At just the, the rapid change. And the thing that she said in every interview, often for an hour or two, is if you just tell people, you would think that they would care. But something that she has learned and I've learned as well is that's not always the case. People hear the story. They know what's happening. I know that there are crucial policy things that we're always dealing with, but at some point we have to recognize that children have been killed by chemical weapons in the country of Syria, and the world has done nothing. And so just understanding that this is not a partisan issue for me. In fact, I'm someone that comes from a very conservative background. I live in Austin. I'm comfortable with people across the political aisle. For me, this is an issue about people, and I, I am encouraging people to vote on this issue in the fall, not because I care that people have some sort of partisan take, but because it has clearly come down to one candidate who cares about people and one who doesn't. And I know that for a lot of people, that's a really hard place. I know for a lot of my my relatives, that's been a really hard choice of having to leave one party. But I also know that I, I want us to have the kind of critical thinking skills to look at where policies are and to ask ourselves, is this really where we want to be as a country? Do we want to be the country that turns our back on people like Hosna and her children? Or do we want to be different? A lot of it does come down to self-image, doesn't it? You know, uh, collective self-image, and, and that has motivated uh, the, the U.S. collectively before. What uh, you know, from you, from your point of view, you want us to get back there. How how how, how, do, how does that happen? You know what? It's so fascinating. I began my first history chapter in the book with the phrase "a profound public awakening," talking about what happened after World War II. So we had two decades of really xenophobic, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, anti-refugee language, and within six years established some of the most important uh, international refugee legislation in the world, and not just the U.S., but we led the way in a lot of ways. And I kept saying, like, how are we going to get back to this part, to this point, um, if it's not a world war, right? And so, of course, I don't want us to be in a war. And yet I have seen, really with goosebumps, the last several months, how our real wrestling with who we are as a country, our identity, this major moment of reckoning around racism 
and oppression and our role in that both in the United States and around the world has um, has echoes from what was happening in the 1950s and 1960s. You know, the civil rights movement always recognized from the 1960s, always recognized that the fight against oppression that was happening here had links to um, places around the world, that they understood that their desire to free people from the shackles of oppression was also something that happened in other places. And I want us to recognize that as well, that we have a role to play in helping people who are not victims but survivors of conflict and war and who are just trying to flee really horrific oppression and to give them not, you know, all, a, a free ticket to an amazing life, but instead just a safe haven where they can find roots and provide for their families. It's interesting as we're, we're talking about the national self-image, I've been thinking about Canada. And it, from mm. all I know about Canada, it seems like they do have a history of viewing themselves in this way, where the U.S. has been at, at points which is, you know, and, and I think that's translated into policy as well, which is the, we are welcoming, they say, to, to refugees. Yeah, you know, what is so fascinating to me is that uh, Canada has a population maybe the tenth of the size of the United States, and they have resettled more refugees than the U.S. has in the last couple of years. So proportionally, they, they resettle a significant number of refugees and always have. And I think that is, you're right, you know, one of the things, again, I thought was so... I went into this research thinking this was about humanitarian crises. And in fact, I realized how we view ourselves is the most important factor in all of that. And I think it it shows us that the way forward is in some ways an individual um, action. So the, the wrestling that we are doing and that we are doing as individuals and in our families and in our communities, if that's happening all around the country, that's actually the way that we can um, change hearts and minds about this issue. And so... I would love to see us get to the point where we're not having to. I, I would love to not have written this book. I wish that this book were not a necessary book. I wish we didn't have to argue about whether basic safety for people who have fled oppression was an argument that had to be made, but it is. And so um, I, would, I think for those of us who really want to do something, the answer is to begin having these conversations in our home. That's part of why I wrote this book, so that you can read the stories and fall in love with two women that I've grown to love and understand exactly what's at stake as we move forward. So that would be the first thing, I guess, uh, you'd say, you know, read these stories, uh, you know, learn about, I suppose, learn about the refugees in your area. What, what else can people do to to help one-on-one? Yeah, I think there are two things. One of them is really practical. There are a lot of resettlement agencies in your local area, and I always tell people to start there. Um, refugee agencies have had attacks from multiple angles. And we haven't really talked about the pandemic for resettlement agencies, but it's really been incredibly complicated because they're trying to do difficult work. Resettlement has just opened up in the last couple of weeks, but they're often missing funding and they don't have the kind of support that they did in the past. And so making sure that you're checking in with them, do they have an Amazon wish list of backpacks you can buy, or is there something else that they need in terms of volunteer support or can you support them financially? And then I really do think that the most important thing that people can do is learn about this issue and refuse to look away. It is so easy when you see, I mean, I hate this, but there are bodies of Syrian children. It's been five years since that little boy, um, the Kurdy boy, washed up on the shore and we just looked away from his body. And so often that happens and it just kind of becomes sensationalized and we like scroll through it on our Facebook feed, and, and what I'm hoping is that people won't look away, that they'll really learn and understand what refugee resettlement is, and then that they'll take this book or other books 
written by former refugees and others and begin to have the kind of important conversations that transcend the polarization and partisanship of this time period. Well, we've reached the end of our time. A very interesting discussion, important, of course. Uh, Jessica Goudeau's new book is After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. Jessica Goudeau, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Each year, Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences welcomes students back with the Light on the Hill event. The tradition continues this year with an online event. On September 1st, no matter where you are, students can participate in a live stream event with opportunities to win prizes, including scholarships, as well as a digital candle lighting. Students and alumni of the college are all invited to carry on this tradition together from the comfort of their own homes. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org. Next time on the Moth Radio Hour. Do your worst, paparazzi. You are not going to shame me off the beach. I'm going to go down to Bondi along with the supermodels and the muscle men. I'm going to wear my wet, clingy bathers, and there's not a freaking thing you can do about it. Join us for more true stories told live on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Tune in Friday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.